Welcome to Martha Lake. Thanks very much for having us over, Greg. It's a real, real pleasure to visit you at no. your house. Well, it's our pleasure to have you here and just show you off what we've got here. Now, of course, right now it's winter or coming up on winter. Greg, I've always wanted to ask you, how much of an inspiration do you get from the surroundings here? It's such a beautiful place that you live in. How much is this impacting on the inspiration for your work? Not as much as it should, because being a writer is a very interior thing. But when I'm not writing, I can come out here and I can sojourn with the animals, with the dragonflies that we love to photograph here, and take samples from the lake. I used to have a microscope that's, not, that's broken right now, but we take samples and take a look at the fauna and count the bacteria in the water and do our own kind of environmental checks. And so the lake has been wonderful. We raised our kids here. So our kids would learn the lake and its fauna and, and the birds and the hummingbirds and all that stuff. So in a way, the backdrop keeps me more calm Whereas the writing life is actually, you know, kind of hard to keep and maintain focus on. For me, science fiction is, it's not just a way of life. It's been my life since I was a kid. Science fiction is a way of thinking. It's actually the longest lived artistic movement in modern times. Because if you think of all the things that it's spun off, everything from uh, fantasy to horror to video games, the whole imaginative literature complex has been so influential on everything in pop culture, but it's also been influential on the sciences. To me, science fiction is the dreaming mind, the subconscious mind of science. And there's always been a back and forth between scientists and science fiction writers, not grudging even sometimes, sometimes totally frank and admiring, where they've come back to each other with ideas and we've borrowed from them, and then they think about what we're talking about and writing about, they borrow from us. And that whole dialogue, that whole complex has been going on for well over 150 years now. And if we go back to when, um, uh, Jonathan Swift was writing. It goes back to the 17th century. What you just said is totally fascinating, Greg, but one word that really surprised me was artistic. You said it's the longest lasting artistic movement. Why artistic? I can see scientific, but artistic? Where's the artistic coming from? The artistic in science fiction is the interface between science and the arts and literature. And so when science became a formal discipline, science and literature had to meet and match up and figure each other out. And we had a lot of interesting starts along the way, as I was saying, Jonathan Swift. Uh, Mary Shelley comes along and actually writes what may be the first real science fiction novel. In the introduction to Frankenstein, she says, I do not just want to frighten you with this novel, although that's certainly my intention, but to make you believe this could possibly happen. And that's the beginning of science fiction thinking, is we are going to show you something that's not only wonderfully entertaining, possibly even scary, maybe even exalting, but it's going to be something that could happen. And that's where the, the interface between science and science fiction really starts to become interesting, where the artistic movement starts to take on life of its own. Is that where your love for photography comes in as a pursuit of um, sort of off science fiction, off work pursuit that gives you the same kind of artistic reward, perhaps. Oh yes, absolutely. Uh, photography is not only just capturing the world, but capturing your reaction to the world. Younger days, I was an illustrator and an artist as well as a writer, and so I had the choice to go back and forth between them. And quite often, I would do astronomical art or fantasy art or surrealistic art just to feel the, the, the tension between doing uh, uh, writing and doing uh, pictorial representations of imaginative ideas. And nowadays I do mostly writing, but there's still the visual mind that I'm working with that I see what I'm writing about and I'm actually living it. 
So as a science fiction writer, I've actually lived being on Mars. I see it in my head as visual imagery. It's like a kind of memory. And uh, learning from uh, people like Paul Anderson and our previous master writers, that when you're writing a scene set in a, an alien world or in the future or even in this world, you have to do the sensory, the, the sensual elements of it. You've got to do the smell, the taste, the feel, the hearing. Describe all of that and the scene is set. And when you do that in your head as a writer, all of a sudden it becomes real to you too. So I walk across a planet's surface or I slog my way through a jungle or I do this sort of thing. And as I'm imagining it, I feel the brushes against my arms. I feel the vines trying to grab at me. I hear the bugs in my ears and all that. It becomes real for me. The same way with scientific ideas. When you're using a scientific idea in the future, you have to kind of make it feel right. You have to develop the scientific language as scientists, as a culture would actually say it. And when that happens, it acquires an interesting reality such that maybe you convince yourself those scientific theories are real or could be real. Or the technology that you're using could be made, could be developed, and at that point, then you're really tripping. So is it fair to say, to say that then, in a sense, uh, writing science fiction is painting a picture with a pen on paper in the old days and maybe now with a keyboard on a computer about scientific ideas that inspired you? Scientific ideas and also at the far end, philosophical ideas. Because the philosophy and the science merge when you get far enough away from present technology. The technology, the instruments you have, the things you can see, the things you can imagine seeing, all start to blend into each other down the road. So if you're 20 years down the road, you're sticking with current science, maybe messing with it a little bit. If you're 50 years down the road, you can't stick with current science entirely. It's going to change, and you have to predict what that change could be. If you're a thousand years down the road, there's never been a real interconnection between all the technical disciplines and all the scientific disciplines across a thousand years. So what are you going to replace it with? And that's when you really become more artistic than scientific, but you're using the scientific language. More philosophical than straight scientific, because you're going to have to break some rules of science. We're going to find ways to break them. We're going to find new facts that challenge what we think of science today. And that becomes very interesting. That's the interface between what becomes almost mysticism and philosophy and what we start off with is science. Greg, now that we're inside of your beautiful office library and sort of ready to proceed with our fantastic, fascinating conversation, let me ask you this. Can you please tell us the story of how and why you got to write science fiction? <laughs> well, that's kind of the classic 20th century story because when I was growing up, the space age was well underway. And at the age of seven or eight, I would get up at four in the morning and go to the television and switch it on an old black and white TV in San Diego and uh, listen to the fuzzy voices and the fuzzy pictures as they're getting ready to launch uh, Alan Shepard or John Glenn into space. And for me, that was a very interesting, almost a sports-like uh, competition, is who's going up there first. I remember being vaguely demolished when Sputnik went up without, you know, without warning. And then when we came back and, and Gagarin and so on, it really was a competition. It was a real race. And it was fun. It wasn't violent. Uh, and, and that was part of the whole extension of this, of this feeling of sense of wonder, that in fact the horizons were endless. And I wanted to write about that. I wanted to, to get my cards in on the game, so to speak. Put them on the table and see what I had to say, even at the age of eight. 
And I liked all different kinds of imaginative literature. It wasn't just science fiction, although that was my focus. I liked horror, I liked uh, ghost stories, I liked fantasy, I read it all. And I also read everything else. So I was just voracious about this. But the one thing about science fiction that struck me as being most attractive was it was the least judgmental. It was the most wide open. Anything goes. And during the years in which I was waiting for, say, you know, 2001 to come along, because I waited four years for that movie to come out, Star Trek came along. And when Star Trek came along, it was a bit of a revelation. Mm -hmm. There's all this cool stuff. Also, I'm a Navy brat. I was raised by a, in a Navy family. My father was a Navy officer. We traveled all over the world. When I looked at Star Trek, it was part of my culture because it was created by a former Naval officer. And Gene Roddenberry took a lot of his Navy training and put it into Star Trek. And it felt right like home for me. Plus the fact that the military had integrated first and early in the 1940s, late 1940s, and the military that I knew was integrated and Star Trek was integrated. And that was a revelation for the world. And it just all seemed to fit for me. So by the time I was in high school, I wanted to make movies. I wanted to paint and illustrate and do pictures. I wanted to write. I wanted to do it all. But I'd already sent stories out starting at the age of 12 to various magazines, starting off with the high-end market, of course, like Boy's Life or, or Saturday Evening Post, and getting rejection slips back. And when I was 15 years old, suddenly I sold a story. Got paid $10. It went to a little magazine called Famous Science Fiction. And suddenly, I was a professional writer. Wow. And it came out when I was 16 years old, just as high school. I was heading into my, uh, between my junior and my senior year, and boy, did I lord it over my English teachers. But they were just getting used to the notion of science fiction. And so there was a little bit of rebelliousness there that was also cool. It wasn't as rebellious as rock music or the drug scene or anything, which I was a little too conservative to get into. It was like into. the jazz of the musical world it was. in the literary world. It was. And, and I often think of science fiction as the jazz of literature. It was things where you had to be a little disciplined, but you were more freeform. You didn't have the snobbishness of other forms of music. And it wasn't utterly wild and druggy, although it did have that extension by that time. There was that part of it that was interesting to watch. Mm -hmm. um, and I was right there in the middle of it. I wanted to be either the next Ray Bradbury or the next Arthur C. Clarke. But living as I did in Southern California, I met a lot of these people. I went to conventions or I went up to Los Angeles or I went to lectures. Ray Bradbury would come down and lecture quite often and met him and became friends with him in 1967. We remained friends until his death and uh, just an amazing, marvelous influence on me corresponding and, and on occasion seeing Arthur C. Clarke, uh, one of my favorite writers in terms of visionary science fiction, and also in terms of the mystical aspects of science fiction. He really knew how to play that mystical chord very well for those who were, in fact, perfectly rational. Mm -hmm. He could find the way to get God and mystical ideas into science fiction that I found utterly fascinating, because I knew they were the same thing as the mystical visions of, say, you know, any religious uh, uh, a writer but they were phrased in scientific terms. And I thought that was wonderfully ingenious. Let me ask you specifically on that point. You said you loved science fiction because it was the least judgmental, the most open-minded, a little bit rebellious. Well, uh, and you spoke about mysticism, but mysticism, especially religious mysticism, is everything the opposite. It's the most judgmental, the least rebellious in many ways, because you're usually having to abide by the book, the sacred writing of your religion. Mm -hmm. So let me ask you, did that play any role in your upbringing? Did it have any impact on your worldview, on the way you started writing science fiction in any way? 
or the questions you were considering? Not so much. My, my parents made sure that I got exposed to different churches, but we were not a church-going family. Uh, they were religious to some extent, but not overtly so, and so they exposed me to uh, Pentecostal churches when we were in Alaska, to all that sort of stuff. So I got, a, I got to see some of that stuff, and I was a bit of a Christian when I was a kid, and, and I remain a friend of Jesus, so to speak, to this day because of a philosophical bent. The mystical side of it is an open question for me. And I say that about nearly all religions, is that I don't trod on what gives people comfort or gives them a feeling of rootedness. I just don't comment on it. That's not where I need to go. I'm not going to criticize uh, a person for their religious beliefs. If I don't happen to believe in them, that may be a temporary state of affairs. I'm not arrogant about my feelings or my beliefs on these areas. It's an open question for me as to whether we understand all of the underpinnings of these questions to begin with. But when you go back to what's the difference between formal religion and mysticism, is formal religion tries to stay as far away from mysticism as it can get. So the last church that I'm aware of that actually encourages an epiphanic experience to acquire maturity is the Mormon church. Mormonism, yes. Right. To some extent, you are directly connected with God in, in Islam, but the older religion gets, the more they want you to go through the, the church. The more they want you to go through the formal because structure. It's the institution, basically. It's the institution and it's the monetary support you'll be rendering to them that will keep them comfortable so they can keep supplying God to you mm -hmm. in the proper doses and in the proper form. Mysticism, like science fiction, is not easily controlled. It is an experience that is personal. It is an experience that cannot necessarily be transferred to others or communicated to others in any convincing way. Science fiction fandom is much the same. If you don't understand why someone's fascinated by science fiction, it's very hard to communicate that. Well, it's about the future. It's about change. It's about everything that lives your life. It's about being a teenager forever. It's about you know, the philosophy of, of, of trying to figure out who you are and what you're doing here and whether there are others like you or whether, even more interesting, there are others who are not like you. And so as I look around, uh, and think of science fiction as a literature, I think of it as being the literature of anything changing and different, where you're heading into a new territory. So when I was a kid, I was taken to science fictional places. They were called the Philippines. They were called Japan. <laughs> they were places that weren't like Southern California, where I was born. Mm -hmm. And I saw things that I just really couldn't quite understand. And I thought, because most of them were not terribly threatening to me, I was fairly safe. I was never uh, involved in any violence or anything like that. That seemed fascinating to me. Mm -hmm. I was in a protected space of travel and change that led me to believe that that was how the mind could experience literature and art down the road, is from the safety of your armchair, you can go into the future, and you can live many different lives. And why wouldn't one want to do that? It's a fascinating journey, and, and I'm going to ask you to take us a few steps further down that journey in, in a second. But before that, I just want to respectfully ask you if it's possible to elaborate a little more about what specifically do you mean when you say that you're a friend of Jesus, philosophically speaking, I think you said. What, what, what does that mean? How, how should I interpret, how do I understand what that the means? The whole notion of uh, acceptance and love of others is pretty major. And Jesus is not the first to begin this. You have Rabbi Hillel, you have a lot of Jewish tradition, a lot of mystical tradition that, that takes you in that direction where you simply don't judge. And that's the direction I've always gone in. So the, the proper attitude of Jesus, and one of the reasons I cannot be a Christian per se, is because Jesus tells you to eschew the physical world. Give up your worldly goods, give them to the poor, help everybody out. I can't quite get there. 
if you have two shirts, give one to. And I believe that is a central tenet of Jesus, is not so much believe in me as the Son of God, which I think is perhaps a later addition, but give up your worldly goods. And that's a mystical message that comes down through all the ages. So I'm a very liberal uh, practitioner of the friend of Jesus thing. And most Christians would toss me aside and say, <laughs> at the very worst, you're a Pelagian. At the very least, you're, you know, you're probably executable. I like the way the new pope is telling us you can do good works and not necessarily be a Christian. That is a heresy. Yeah. We are actually seeing the age of where the Catholic Church is now going back to heresies that St. Augustine would have, would have just blanched at. So I think we're coming into an interesting age now where poverty, cultural values, uh, religious persuasions, all these things are almost secondary to the adventure of simply being human. And that's where Jesus takes us, where most of the mystics take us, is I don't know who I am, I don't know what I'm doing here, but I want to know more. Mm -hmm. And you know, it, it's fascinating to me because as you were saying about science fiction being non-judge or the least judgmental, uh, and we were just speaking about religion and the, the recent events in, in Rome, and it brought to mind um, the, the Pope who said uh, very recently and created a lot of stir about homosexuals and he was like if they love God and they have a relationship with God who am I to judge uh, and and which was really in many ways uh, it's a very apostolic point of view it's a very uh, Jesus friendly point of view because you know he washed the feet of, of, of the poor and the sick and he took in Mary Magdalene a prostitute and all of that and that's very hard for many hardcore Christians today to do but Especially the religion of wealth being deserved, that God gives you wealth, which I think is one of the real heresies of the modern age. Yeah, but, but you're referring to the original Jesus. I was referring to the Pope in the sense that perhaps he's a science fiction fan like you. He may very and well like be. like you, he likes the non-judgmental non part of it, yeah. or embracing it and bringing it back to Christianity, which is a fascinating uh, sort of connection for me to draw. I wouldn't, I wouldn't put it past him to have read science fiction. There's a number of very good uh, science fiction novels that are kind of based on Catholic uh, mythology. Uh, a Case of Conscience by James Blish and uh, A Canticle for Leibowitz by uh, Walter M. Miller. And these are both excellent novels which deal with Catholicism. Case of Conscience takes the notion, the basic notion that Catholicism is correct, that Milton and Dante were correct, and takes the metaphysic from there. And also you, many other novels by Blish followed in that territory. So he's taking a, a, a case of conscience as a theological model to base a science fiction novel on, as do a number of other people. There's a number of Jewish science fiction novels, which I find mm -hmm. fascinating. And, um, that whole approach is you can combine religion and science. They are not necessarily contradictory. Who can say that they are if they have an open mind? The but problem is it is, possible to really have an open mind in ex religion? Excellent question, because for many of us, we just get rooted into one way or another. It's very exhausting to stand on tiptoes through your entire life. There's only one God and his name is blah, blah, well, right? That can well, be comforting. And, and, and therefore, you, that righteousness, that certainty, right? It becomes, becomes a kind of way of, of cudgeling people Mental and slavery power. in a way, because yeah. you, you put the, the intellectual chains on and you're stuck in that path afterwards. Yeah. Whereas science, on the other end, is basically follow the evidence no matter where it takes you. Right. And if it doesn't comply with the hypothesis that you began with, you are o you're forced to change it. Absolutely. And we've seen too often instances where science has, for over 100 years now, been faced with contradictory evidence, evidence 
not necessarily in the mystical sphere, but let's say in biology and evolution, mm -hmm. where they haven't changed. Because it's a culturally mandated patriarchal system. Mm -hmm. And I don't say that as a feminist. When I say it's patriarchal, that's actually a sociological judgment. Mm -hmm. A lot of men have been in control of these ideas for a long time, and men have certain ways of, of establishing their territory and then protecting it. Yeah. And when you have a bunch of old scientists, for example, the Clovis Mafia, which insisted for, for decades that the Clovis points were the earliest forms of technology on the North American continent, and now they've been basically dismissed, that was an amazingly punitive action, that, uh, culture that they had, because they could take and ruin your career academically if you contradicted them. Now they've proven wrong. Mm -hmm. That happens so often. You cannot be a dogmatist and be a scientist, a real scientist. Here's my challenge is you cannot be a dogmatist and be a really religious person. Mm -hmm. uh, it reminds me to what Voltaire said once, which was, to have doubt is natural, to, ha to be certain is absurd. Yes. And, and I, I think it's, it's a always a good thing to, to kind of everyone, not too often, right, because then you cannot accomplish anything, but it's good to second guess yourself every once in Absolutely. a while and reconsider what you consider to be your most foundational assumptions every once in a while. And that gives you a lot of fresh uh, outlook on uh, or angles of perceiving uh, uh, the truths that you have taken for granted. Yes. But uh, before we go into um, evolution and biology, which are very important topics and I want to uh, go into, I want to finish the science fiction uh, conversation here with, is science fiction about the future? Because I've interviewed couple of dozen of science fiction writers so far and there is a huge disagreement about whether science fiction is about predicting the future, where it's a reflection of the present, uh, what the definition is. Everybody seems to have their own take on things. I take a larger view of it. Science fiction is about change. Science fiction is about anything that takes you beyond your present day life. Uh, it can be the future, it can be travel to another place, it can be travel to another world. And these are all extreme versions of, of the, the basically the Robinsonian adventure. Mm -hmm. We're going to a strange place. We're going to hang out. We're going to try to survive. Mm -hmm. If you're living in the future from the character's point of view, then you're doing a sociological study of when the world has changed and you weren't there to witness it. But now you're there vicariously to see it and to s perhaps judge it to see whether you want to go there or not. So a future where you're immersed in the future and you don't have a person coming from the past into the future is a particularly interesting study in science fiction. Uh, the classic version is a 20th century person or a contemporary person is brought forward into an unusual situation. The mm -hmm. reader can sympathize, can feel I could be that person, I could live that life. The harder part is to actually take a future living character and make them sympathetic to a modern day mm -hmm. a reader. All of these things are part of it, but I regard certain historical novels as being as science fiction ones as anything that I write. Shogun, for example, is a clash of cultures. Mm -hmm. It's a 16th century science fiction novel. Yeah, it's about aliens called Japanese meeting up with what they regard as the alien called the English or the Dutch. The Gaijin. Or the Gaijin, also the, 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 the economic and technical dominance that's about to come flooding down on this, this thoroughly traditional and medieval culture. Mm -hmm. and, and the clash of civilizations in the science fictional sense, not in the dogmatic modern sense, which I find ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Civilizations are always clashing. When you cross over into another town, if you go to Toronto or Chicago or New York, you get a clash of civilizations if you're a Southern California boy. Uh, when we came up here to Washington State, we you know, kind of had to take our license plates off, California license plates, because they, what are you doing coming up here? <laughs> you know, 
is new high school or and as a navy brat i went to new high schools new schools a lot got transferred all over the place and had to encounter those situations so i went to a lot of different alien worlds before i was 13 years old mm -hmm. and i survived Mm -hmm. So there's the training for this. Uh, plus the fact that I survived because I was an interior thinker. If I had problems, I was big enough, brash enough, and not too nerdy that I couldn't get along in society in most situations. But mostly I wanted to spend time in my head and read books, read comic books, watch movies. I wanted to explore this imaginary world that I was just getting view of. And by the time I was 11 years old, living in Kodiak, Alaska, I had access to a Navy base library the military quite often was very fond of science fiction. And they had a wonderful science fiction section in Kodiak in their library. Classic science fiction books, Heinlein, Asimov, uh, Gnome Press, science fiction story collections. All that stuff was available for me. Paul Anderson, plus Scholastic Book Services was starting to sell Edgar Rice Burroughs paperbacks to the schools directly. Mm -hmm. And my grandmother sent me a bunch of books up from Los Angeles, which included books by Brian Aldiss and Edward E. Smith. And boy, was I being fed what I needed. <laughs> Suddenly, I was the super vitaminized Spider-Man of imagination. And I could leap from tall story to tall story, spreading webs of my own story in between for months. And that's how I survived. If I had traumas or thoughts or, or feelings of inadequacy, in my imagination, I was not inadequate. I was going places no one else around me could go. So, Greg, can you tell me whether there was anything unique about that era. The 1960s, we know the hippie revolution, uh, sort of a very pivotal, radical, revolutionary period in the world. Did that have any, that kind of unique environment, did that have anything to do with sort of a whole generation of science fiction writers that came out of that period? And what's that say about the world at that time and today, perhaps? Well, it certainly happened in and around our group, and we had people who went off and joined the Communist Party in the 30s and 40s and then backed out of the Communist Party. We had people who were involving in, in different revolutionary things. A lot of hippies read science fiction. A lot of rock musicians read science fiction. The reason I read science fiction, A, it was fascinating, but also I discovered by the late 1960s that there was a culture of science fiction that could take you into its bosom, so to speak, and, and encourage you and give you a place to voice your opinions. Science fiction conventions have been going on since 1939, mm -hmm. with the hiatus for the war. But after the war, they came back and they started proliferating and they became small conventions, world cons, large conventions. And the convention idea was a place to get together and, and basically a secular church to meet at. And you could be on panels no matter what your age was. You could sit and discuss topics, all different kinds of topics. You could express your enthusiasms. You could do artwork and put it onto an art show. So in 1968, a bunch of us from San Diego, my friend Scott Shaw and David Clark and I, went up to uh, San Francisco, to Oakland actually, and went to the Claremont Hotel where they were having Baycon. So there we are, 16 years old, wow. and we come up on the bus and we wander into the, this hotel, which is in kind of a rundown condition at that point. It becomes a beautiful hotel later. But it's, it's fun. We walk into the lobby, and over here is John W. Campbell, Jr., the editor of Astounding Analog which is one of my favorite magazines. You can go talk to him. He and his wife are sitting there in the lobby. Over here is Lynn Carter, who is, uh, who is uh, editing the, fantasy, the adult fantasy series for Ballantyne, which is producing the kind of revolution that's following on from the success of Tolkien as a paperback. 
introducing us to all the fantasy writers from the 20th century and the 19th century that we knew nothing about, and even earlier in some cases. Over here you have John Brunner with his new novel, Stand on Zanzibar, which is this stunning vision of life in the year 2012, 2010. Uh, we've got uh, all this ferment going on, and then Star Trek is there. Uh, and bringing on, you know, we've managed to, to help them get their third season going. B. Joe Tremble, who was one of the art show creators, uh, has, has done this and has, and has managed to turn them into the force, help to turn them into the force they will soon become because now they can be serialized. They can be spread around on networks after they go away. Um, all of that is happening all at once. And it's utterly dizzying. So over here is comics fandom, is Edgar Rice Burroughs fandom, there's hard science fiction fandom, there's horror fandom, H.P. Lovecraft, Clark Ashton Smith, all of it. It's like the entire 20th century is meeting here where you are no longer a teenager, you are no longer 70 or 80 years old. We're meeting fans who were at the science fiction convention in 1939 who are older than us, probably my age now. <laughs> we're, you know, we're going to the ice cream parlor and hanging out with Ray Bradbury, who we already know because he likes to hang out with young people and and uh, you know he's, he's uh, introduced us around to each other. We're meeting up with the special effects people who are going to be changing the nature of, of movies in the next 20 years. We're all 16, 17 years old, but we fit right in. There is no age criterion here. They just want to know what you're thinking. And if they want to help you figure out what you're thinking, they'll do that. They'll put, hey, Edgar Rice Burroughs is great, they'll say, or come over here and read this character, or we'll sell you these books over here. These are first editions, classic science fiction. Paperbacks are coming out. Wow. It was a real heyday. And it was the heyday of the book, the paperback book, which had been started back in the 1940s, was now prospering mightily. Not, as, not quite as good as they were in the, in, the, in the 50s, but still quite good. Uh, and... It was just a renaissance for me. It was like being dropped in the middle of Italy in the, in the renaissance. And all of these artists are gathering in the coffee shop or in the bar or whatever, talking about what they're doing, and they're happy to talk to you. And they're happy. So you can meet science fiction writers. You can meet your favorite science fiction writer, and they're the same age you are. Even Jack Williamson, who I'm not sure was there, but Jack Williamson, when I last saw him, was 95 years old. He was 17 in his head. Wow. He regarded us as peers. And how amazing is that? There is no age snobbery among most of these people. There is just this feeling of enthusiasm and of shared experiences. What's the shared experience? The imagination. We can argue about it. We can argue bitterly about it. Some of these people were bitter enemies because fantasy is better than science fiction. And I can prove it. And all <laughs> that fan feud stuff went on back and forth. And it was a lovely war of ideas. <laughs> All in 1968, and then from that point on, we said, we want to do this more. So our San Diego group got together and started putting together publishing fanzines and creating letter columns and sending artwork off to other fanzines and participating in the fanish community, going to art shows, going to other conventions. Then a group of us got together with a group of older guys in San Diego who ran bookstores or were comic book fans, and we said, let's put on our own convention. And one of our uh, older mentors said, how about a comic book convention? And so a bunch of us got together, about 10 or 11 of us, and, and we put together San Diego Comic-Con in 1969-70. Wow. And that became 200 people in the first year. But Ray Bradbury showed up, Jack Kirby showed up, a lot of artists and writers showed up. We had a ball. We just thoroughly enjoyed it, and it kept going, and it kept getting bigger. 
and it kept big enough that finally San Diego said, we got to kick these people out because there's a bunch of weird comic book fans running around downtown. And at that point, the hotel association said, wait a minute, you want to kick out 10,000 room nights in the middle of summer? And now it's 150,000 room nights. Wow. And that's how all that began was because of a bunch of crazy young kids, 16, 17, 18 years old. Most of us couldn't drive. A couple of mentors who helped us out with our ideas and, and their own experience of running conventions. A little bit of economic help. Ray Bradbury being enthusiastic because he loved San Diego and loved hanging out with us. And it reminded him of his early days in fandom. And Jack Kirby, and, and it just took off. So it seems to me that your imagination was kind of fire started and then totally blown away by the whole experience of being able to grow up in the 60s, to, to travel a lot as you did, and to meet firsthand those people who were in some cases considerably older and more experienced than you, but yet as a peer. So let me ask you, 50 years after, is there anything recently of your experience that has had that kind of mind-blowing, mind sort of horizon-expanding experience that you've had that you were totally surprised by and that you'd want to share with us? I'm not sure it's that quite a level of intensity because it's now part of the, of the whole mainstream culture. It's everywhere. What we considered special and uh, to ourselves and thought only we understood is now everywhere. In 1968, hardly anybody knew what a warp drive was. Hardly anybody cared what a robot was. You know, Star Trek was for, for geeks, but they didn't use that word back then. It's for weirdos. Mm -hmm. you know, I don't understand that. Or 2001, how can you understand that movie? You know, I, I just totally absorbed it. I became 2001 and followed on from that. Um, that kind of, of enthusiasm is hard to replicate, but it happens for kids today. So if I'm getting letters from 14, 15 year olds for say a book like Darwin's Radio, which is actually quite a complicated adult novel, asking questions about how did you write this and so on, that's the same thing I would have done. These people are still with us, they are still as I was, as we were back then, they are still questing, and their experience is every bit as energetic and personal as what I went through, but now there's tens of hundreds of millions of them. They're all over the planet. They were back then, but there was one or two here and there. Nowadays, because of the outreach of video games and computer games and uh, movies and television, you can't run into anybody who doesn't understand the culture of science fiction and fantasy. We've got a lot more horror now. It's mostly zombies and vampires at this point, but you know, it was a lot of zombies and vampires back when we were kids too. <laughs> and uh, the whole level of, of discovery and enthusiasm is still with us. We've talked a lot about the fiction part of science fiction. Let's talk a little bit about the science part. So I think I heard you say before that science fiction is the dreams of science. Yes. Uh, so let's let's talk a little bit about the 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 the, the egg and the chicken problem. Is mm -hmm. science fiction that which inspires science, or is science fiction that is inspired by science? I would say it's a symbiotic relationship. Uh, you cannot have scientific discovery without speculation. The speculation is a poetic vision that you start to take down and have to prove to make it a scientific principle. You have to demonstrate it and be able to show it to someone else and have them replicate it. Now in some cases that's like in, in chemistry or, or engineering, that's something you do. In astronomy it's harder to do. You can't do you know, uh, double-blind experiments with galaxies. So it's observational. But it's also a tightly knit and, 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 and rationally uh, uh, measured vision of seeing the world as clearly as you possibly can without personal embellishment. 
Now, the personal embellishment is there because that's where the dreams lead you to the discoveries, is they come out of your understanding of the world. They come out of your subconscious. So a scientific theory is a tendency that's actually probably part of your bones and your blood. Mm -hmm. And then you try and take it out there and prove it. You say, I believe this is the way the world is because this is the way I was brought up. This is what I saw when I was a kid. This is what I experienced. I think this, therefore, is it true? Mm -hmm. And you go out there and you interact with other human beings. You interact with nature. You try and figure out whether it's true or not. So the dreaming imagination is fundamental to science. But the difference is that there are some questions that are so huge that you cannot answer them right away. Not within your lifetime, perhaps. Certainly not within a decade or two. Mm -hmm. But you still want to play with them. So what do you do? You go forth with a, a story about somebody discovering something or visiting someplace that tarries out your theories, but in a more playful way. You're not saying, no, this is, you're not saying this is science. This is fact. You're not saying that. You're saying this is, this is fun. We're going to dream about this. We're going to lay it out there. Maybe it's true. Maybe it isn't. You don't have to believe it, but have fun listening to me. Mm -hmm. And that's the fairy tale aspect of science fiction is it's, a little looser, a little more liberating, and academically, you're not committing yourself to suicide if everyone disagrees with you. Mm -hmm. Because, hey, it's just a story. You can back away from it. So a lot of scientists wrote science fiction. Even back in the early 20th century, you had uh, Eric Temple Bell writing as John Tain, a famous mathematician, wrote beautiful books on mathematics, wrote very good science fiction. Uh, you had H.G. Wells, who was not a scientist per se, but really smart and really technologically savvy, doing science fiction and really breaking the barrier, proving that science fiction could be written by someone other than the upper classes. Mm -hmm. Then you had Aldous Huxley, who was upper class and loved by the academics and wrote science fiction. And his brother, Julian Huxley, also a scientist. And they, they were basically nerds, very talented nerds. Aldous certainly was. So when, he, when we read... Uh, uh, Brave New World today, to me it reads just like something out of a science fiction magazine in the 30s and 40s, which is strongly influenced because those major popular novels started to filter off, their literary quality started to spread out into science fiction. And uh, there's a long story there about the, the two cultures separating the sciences and literature after World War I. But the basic truth was that they never could completely separate. There was friction, there was certainly disdain, there was even contempt mm -hmm. in the literary world for what would become known as the science fictional fandom world. Yeah. And it, interestingly enough, it was also a contempt of the fashion conscious for the intellectual nerd. The nerd who really didn't understand society as well as they thought this person should, uh, he or she. Uh, nerds were creating a form of art that they felt comfortable with. And a lot of literary people, certainly upper class people, academics, did not feel comfortable in that world because they didn't feel comfortable with science. Greg, I, I want to bring another dimension here and pick up on a couple of thoughts uh, there. And you said the idea was basically it's just a, a story. Maybe it's true, maybe it's not true, but let's just have fun. Listen to me and let's just have fun. But, and you gave the example of Brave New World, among several others. But let me ask you this as a philosopher. Is it just a story? Because I've read three or four of your books and I get the impression, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's not just a story. There is a normative element there, sneaking in between the plot and, and the, the dialogues and everywhere. It's somewhere there in the subtext about things that perhaps we shouldn't be doing. And mm -hmm. if we are doing, maybe we should stop. And things that perhaps we ought to be doing. 
So how is that coming to play between the science and the fiction and the philosophy or the normative element? It's the sugar-coated pill. H.G. <laughs> Wells, Wells described there's, there's literature that describes what is, that is what, around, what is around you, and that's fine. There's literature that describes what could be, and there's literature with adjustment interest, he called it. In other words, it's proselytizing. It's trying to persuade, but it's doing it in a sugar-coated pill, or sometimes in a scary pill, like 1984. To some extent, Hole Zero Three. Hole Zero Three. Well, it could be scary, but it also gives you an idea of how starships may actually work. So as we do this long enough, we know how to balance the components here. You don't want to sit there and, and, and preach at somebody, but at the same time, you're providing examples that could change the way they think. So there's adjustment interest as well. So this is kind of an awkward phrase, but I'm not sure I'd come up with one that's better. Uh, in, in science fiction fandom, it's called serious and constructive. We are serious and constructive. We are writing about hard science, accurate science fiction, because we want you to consider this as a potential way to change the world, as to look at the world in a different way. Serious and constructive. So we call that CIRCON. Maybe CIRCON and adjustment interest are the same. When H.G. Wells does The Time Machine, it's a marvelous fairy tale. It's just wonderful. I'm sure Einstein read it before he came up with his versions of the theory of relativity. <laughs> it takes the four-dimensional mathematical geometric uh, Victorian notions and just plays the devil with them and has great fun with it. But along the way, it's an upstairs-downstairs story, too. Literally, upstairs-downstairs. Wells was lower middle class, and not, his family was not very well off. So he always had to look up at the upper classes. So is he an Eloy? Is he a science geek? Yes, he's a nerd. He's also an Eloy. The Eloy run machines, or rather the Morlocks run machines. He's not an Eloy, he's a Morlock. He's down in the dark in the caverns running the machines or fixing the machines. And the upper classes are these blonde, lithe creatures running around, utterly beautiful, utterly unattainable, and vacuous. So maybe they should become food. You know, and that upstairs downstairs thing, maybe the lower classes will come up and eat the rich, is part of modern culture today. But that that that's adjustment interest with a real bite to it. It's a real satirical bite. In War of the Worlds, he's saying, yes, yes, you you imperialists have just taken over Africa. And, and, and South America, and you've been doing this for centuries now, and your cruelties are numerous, Mars comes and does it to England. Mm. And the English eat it up. Why? <laughs> because it's in a sugar-coated pill. It's a story you don't have to believe until you wake up in the middle of the night and go, wait a minute! Oh my God, what was he really trying to say? And you start to get frightened. You know, Could this actually happen to us? So by the time World War II comes along and the whole world is changing and Orson Welles does H.G. Wells and the war is on the, water, on the way and, and the forefront of, of change is hitting you hard, you panic. Is this real? Are the Martians really coming? Martians represent uncontrollable change, as Europeans did represent for North American Africans. Aborigines, Indians, Australians, Africans. Mm -hmm. That's what science fiction does to you, is it takes you out of your present prejudices and subjects you, without perhaps even realizing it, into a world of possibility or of nightmare. Prevention or prognostication or promotion. Greg, as a philosopher, though, I, I want to ask you, which one of those three that you just mentioned is the most important one? Is it sort of the science? Is it the fiction? Or is it that normative element? Because the philosopher of, uh, in me wants to say, Perhaps the science and the fun 
the entertainment part are just tools mm -hmm. just so that we can make that normative message and sugarcoat it as you put it or dress it nicely enough so that people can swallow the sugar-coated pill and suddenly one day wake up and realize that there's a deeper underlying message so isn't that really really the ultimate goal of what you're doing once i was privileged to have uh, a dinner in brighton with doris lessing and with the strugatsky brothers and peter doris's son uh, could speak Russian, and so he translated the Strugatskis to speak a little English, but it was back and forth. It was a fascinating conversation because I described the satirical aspect of science fiction as poking fun, and they described, no, it's under the radar, changing things. So they were very serious and constructive, and this was one of the last ways in Stalinist, post-Stalinist Russia even, that you could criticize, is they basically didn't understand what science fiction was. The nomenclatura either read it and enjoyed it if they were in the intellectual class, but the uh, Politburo, all that sort of stuff, ah, we're too old, we don't care about that. That's just science fiction, it's fairy tales for kids. You know, teach them science, good. So the Strugatsky brothers could infiltrate and pervert and change, and they felt very strongly about it that way. Americans come from a slightly different perspective because there's many ways in which we can complain about it. We can bitch about anything, anytime, and we usually don't get arrested for it. So for us, for me, it's a matter of, no, hold step back a bit. We must first entertain. Mm -hmm. The emotional context, the, uh, the entertainment context is really important. All the rest of that stuff is not necessarily subservient because the way science fiction readers are, they do like to be subjected to puzzle problems, to, uh, to, to suggesting new ways of thought. Robert Heinlein was always a suggester. So if he writes a really rabble-rousing book like Starship Troopers, he's basically saying, hey, I just want you to think about this. Don't have to believe it. And, and then you'd get a lot of controversy, and people would have fun. And argue and bitch and scream and write fanzine letters and back and forth. That still happens to this day. In America, the entertainment factor of science fiction is still, to my mind, very, very key, because they can't be separated. You cannot have entertaining science fiction that is not stimulating and challenging. You can have the kind of thing that, you know, if we take a look at what's considered cliche science fiction now, Star Trek or Star Wars or whatever, there's still a lot of change in there. There's a lot of suggested change. When they first came out, and to this day, they remain challenging. Mm -hmm. uh, Star Wars, perhaps not so much, more of a fantasy aspect thing. It is, in fact, you know, messianic and, and a fantasy kind of world with science fiction trappings. But when you get to the Lord of the Rings, a fantasy story, that's a major change. It takes Wagner and puts the little guys in charge, quite literally. <laughs> you know, instead of the elves and the gods, uh, you know, running things, the hobbits turn out to be the solution, and they're yeoman farmers. Mm -hmm. And that's very revolutionary. That's, in a sense, the beginning of democracy in, in high fantasy. And that carries on. So what we're doing is gradually chipping away through the last 500 years at the rule of the rich and the powerful, the religious classes, so that the middle classes can rise up and express themselves. And science fiction is a thoroughly middle class literature because you don't have to be anything to enjoy it. You don't have to be anything to, to become a part of it. You don't have to have expectations or upbringing to write it. You just have to be who you are and if you're ready to think in these new ways and try yourself out at it, you can become a comic book artist, you can become 
a screenwriter, you can write for television, you can write for books, you can publish for yourself now on the internet. And these, all of these industries are created by people who started off as major science fiction fans. Mm -hmm. You know, Paul Allen, Bill Gates, all read science fiction when they were kids. Jeff Bezos, big Star Trek fan. Paul Allen, major Star Trek fan. Uh, most of the people we've met, Elon Musk and, and uh, Peter Diamandis, and most of these people, huge science fiction readers. And they're starting to transform aerospace, the car industry. They're transforming things. Where did they get their impetus from? From people entertaining them. We didn't have to pound their heads on the sand uh, against the wall mm -hmm. to change them. All we had to do was tell them a really good story and say, hmm, think about it. And they did. And because of the power of their personalities and their own you know, connection with the culture of our present day, these younger people, and most of them are about between five and 20 years younger than me, are really changing the world around us, sometimes in very exasperating ways for the old guard. So think about it. The people who are changing the world read science fiction. The people who want the world to stay the same resent it. But there's something to be said for, we need a little wisdom and need to slow down a little bit at times. And that's the whole dynamic between the conservative and the liberal, or between the one the conservative that's going away and the liberal that's trying to change things, between adjustment, interest, and entertainment. The friction, the tension is where the art comes in, because you're always trying to seduce and persuade when you do a work of art, a work of literature. A, you're suspending disbelief, especially with science fiction. You've got to tell the person, I've started this story off in such a way that, okay, you may not believe it, in a few more pages you will. You'll just be swept up into it. You can't avoid it. It's going to be so utterly wonderful and seductive that you've just got to finish the damn book or the story. And if you do that, you've won the game. But along the way, you're slipping in that, yeah, you thought you believed this, didn't you? But look at this over here. Same thing happens when you read history. History is a way of knocking apart, if you read it correctly, it's a way of knocking apart your prejudices, of taking what you think about yourself and your world and saying, no, look at this. This is what they thought. This is what they did. So in a sense, science fiction is history in reverse. We are writing, sometimes, the history of the future. It's not the real history. But if you get to someone like H.G. Wells doing things to come, it comes pretty damn close. I've watched that movie released in 1936. It's about the coming war. And the opening segments are visions of what could happen if London is bombed from the air, which it was during World War I. Gas coming, biological warfare, all of these things were talked about in World War I. Some of them were done. And then they're going to be done worse, and there's going to be huge airplanes and saturation bombing, and cities are going to be destroyed. Four years later, it's happening. Yeah. Now, how prognosticative is that? It was terrifying. In the theaters of the day, the movie was so damn scary that it didn't actually do as well as it could have. So for those audiences in 1936, watching H.G. Wells' prediction of what might happen in a few years and things to come, this film version of his best-selling book, it was scary, it was terrifying, because they were afraid of that. They knew it was coming, the war was coming. Hitler was banging the drums very quickly in, in Europe. And most of Europe was corrupt and, and still just amazingly dictatorial and tyrannical. All the nations, maybe Czechoslovakia, were run by dictators. Uh, France and, and Britain uh, and Czechoslovakia and maybe you know, a few other smaller states. And so that whole war drum beat when the movie came on the screen and every town is bombed to oblivion in the first 15 minutes and children lie buried in the rubble and the gas comes. That scares the hell out of the audiences. And yet, four years later, there it is. It's starting to happen to them. And in Europe, it's three years later, earlier. And 
in China, it's already happened. The whole world is about to go through this. So is it science fiction? Is it a dream, a nightmare of what's to come? Is it preparation? Is it getting yourself ready? Science fiction actually has this aspect sometimes of, of helping immunize you against future shock. So when it comes, you are prepared for it, or more prepared for it. In 1939, the New York Times started publishing pieces on fission, the discovery of fission in Germany. And this was really starting to push some buttons, so that over here you had scientists like uh, Edward Teller going to uh, Albert Einstein and saying, we need to talk to the president about this. And, and Leo Gillard finally coming on board, another physicist. And the whole California physicist crew and, and Stanford and the group going to Roosevelt and saying, this is happening. Well, that was happening in the press, too. It was happening in the New York Times. It was also happening in the science fiction magazines. And in November of 1939, John W. Campbell, not even in an editorial, but in the back, in a little column in the back of Astounding Science Fiction magazine, his magazine, which he knows goes to, goes to tens of thousands of scientists around the world. He says, you know, this discovery of fission, we've got this war coming up, and I'm just wondering whether we will get to that war without using an atomic weapon. And already, he's starting to put, perhaps, I, I'm imagining that, that Campbell could have done this, he's starting to say, okay, how can I figure out with the information I have whether this is actually beginning or not? Maps of subscribers, where they are, does he see a concentration of pins in New Mexico? You know, and, 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 and they were getting their astounding magazines delivered in these secret places. Mm -hmm. Did they go through an APO address? I don't know, there's many stories left to be told here. But Edward Teller told Gregory Benford, oh yes, we got astounding and we talked about the stories. And uh, one of the stories was about nuclear fission and it was 1942 or 43. And so the FBI went to visit John W. Campbell in his office. Where did you get this story about nuclear fission and bombs and stuff? Oh, that's straight old science fiction stuff. And then Campbell is probably saying to myself, oh my God, it's on. Mm -hmm. I've sent a, a, a drone out there, a science fiction story written by a good writer to see whether something's happening, and the FBI comes back and talks to me. I'm keeping my mouth shut from now on. Let me ask you about another science fiction story, purportedly about things to come, uh, purportedly very popular and sort of looking at current trends and trying to extrapolate. Um, it's a story that's very popular with the audience of my blog, and that's the singularity story. So what's your, what's your take, if you can give us the brief rundown of, of sort of your verdict on the technological singularity scenario, what would that be like? It's the, uh, the uh, um, secular apotheosis is how I would describe it. And it goes back in science fiction. It's the moment of exaltation arising from simply considering scientific principles or believing that you can live into the future and see amazing things. It's, I will live forever. It's uh, Gilgamesh. You know, it's Enkidu, the discovery of immortality and mortality and losing immortality, losing your immortality. And, and so it goes way back. But for me, it begins with Arthur C. Clarke. And he's not the first. There's also Olaf Stapledon, who does much the same thing in taking you so far into the future that you get so dizzy that you start to feel almost a religious exaltation. Mm -hmm. You feel like you've gone beyond your body. You have survived space and time. You are now experiencing what the time traveler experienced, going 800,000 years in the future, or 
in House on the Borderland, what our, our mystical adventurer is about to experience as he goes to the end of space and time and watches the destruction of the universe. Olaf Stapledon, Arthur C. Clarke, and a number of science fiction writers in smaller doses prepare us for this moment where we feel the moment of ecstatic revelation. But it's not through the religious principles. It's not through talking about spirituality or through God or through the priests saying you need to experience this. It's coming through, we will someday be so knowledgeable and so powerful that we will do this. We'll be God's own earth. We'll be God's ourselves. And that's a prime theme in science fiction. Everything from Ender's Game to uh, Blood Music to, uh, you know, so many stories uh, about the superhuman, including uh, Stranger in a Strange Land. All of these things take and play off this notion of religious revelation coming out of the sciences purely. Arthur C. Clarke gives you mystical experiences in books like Childhood's End and City in the Stars through scientific descriptions. We find it often with the notion of, in, in 2001, for example, 2001 is about intelligent design. Really. The aliens come down to Earth and mess with our genes. Touch us here, touch us there, give us challenges, do this, do that. And yet, I don't know Richard Dawkins or any of the other you know, heavy-duty uh, atheists in, in biology or biological writing ever resent that because it's aliens. It's a scientific origin for their power. It's the culture of science, the discipline of science leading us to this apotheosis, this uh, huge moment in the future or perhaps today where suddenly we acquire terrific revelation, terrific power, terrific knowledge. The singularity takes that and says, what if we don't get there first? What if the machines get there first? And that, of course, is a classic story. The Machine Stops by E.M. Forrester, or any number of H.G. Wells short stories, or we can go on and on and on. Darwin Among the Machines. Yes. Samuel Butler. Yes. And, and all of that is, what are these robot servants going to do when they rise up? So you have With Folded Hands by uh, Jack Williamson, which may be the first real kind of frightening singularity story, where the robots, our servants, take such good care of us that they don't let us do anything for ourselves because we might hurt ourselves. Isaac Asimov takes that into the robot stories and runs with them. And then we get Hal in 2001, which mm -hmm. a, a lot of people think Isaac Asimov sat in the theater and says, wait a minute, that doesn't follow the three laws of robotics. <laughs> no, but Hal is neurotic. If Hal is neurotic, Hal is human. If Hal has a complex because of the contradictory nature, then Hal is experiencing PTSD, machine PTSD. And all of that says, okay, what if the machines become like us? So the singularity says, what if the machines not only become like us, but become better than us, and then incomprehensibly better than us? What if the machines become gods before we become gods? That's a scary idea. Is it a likely idea? You gotta have two things connecting machine intelligence and real intelligence. You have to understand what intelligence is, and we don't. We are ignorant almost as we ever were about how the human brain works, about how biology works, about the ways to encode these systems in machines, which I actually don't think is all that easy to do. I used to be a transhumanist in my fiction. I'm one of the major influences on transhumanism today because I wrote books like Blood Music, mm -hmm. which takes the entire world and transforms it in Eon, where you have many different varieties of human being in many different forms a thousand years in the future. Queen of Angels, where you have people undergoing transformation and nanomachine uh, uh, transformations, etc., designing themselves, designer genes, designer bodies, all these things are part of my science fiction. Uploading and downloading personalities, that was very common in the 60s and 70s. And I certainly played with it in Eon. And then I came to realize, wait a minute, 
in a biological system, the hardware is the software. It's not a bunch of, of instructions, programming instructions running through wires and circuitry. It's complexes of proteins in cells coordinating and creating signaling systems and living the life of the idea. The idea has life. The idea is life. It is not an electric current necessarily passing through. You do have electric currents in, in cells, and you see that, but that's not necessarily where the fire is burning. That's where you get the signal off of the fire. Mm -hmm. So you're hearing that you're seeing the heat, you're hearing the crackle from the fire, but you're not analyzing the fire. So in other words, you're saying that because we don't really know what intelligence is, we therefore are unlikely to create it anytime soon, and therefore the singularity is an unlikely scenario overall. It's not, a, not necessarily unlikely, it's just going to require some major rethinking. At the current moment, right. it's not a very likely close, let's say. And there's say. a reason for that, because science fiction has been in some ways too successful. We've created far too much of a persuasive vision that the future continues to be within our grasp, that we can change and adapt and do things. And I'm not going to discourage that, because it's quite possible. There could be a moment where some genius comes along and utterly transforms our world with a rational new idea, theory, or technology. Mm -hmm. But the one thing I see coming up, which a lot of transhumanists really resent me talking about, is what I call the brick wall of philosophy, mm -hmm. which is, I'm not sure you can use a Turing machine to describe a biological system. Mm -hmm. I want to come back to that in, in a second, but before that, I want to look at two alternative paths to the singularity. Werner Vinge, whom I've also interviewed for my podcast before, talks about three potential paths to the singularity, only one of which we've mentioned so far. The other two are through human enhancement. In other words, we do have the intelligence already. I think we agree that much. And then we can enhance it, perhaps with the sort of brute force capabilities of the hardware that we are creating, and thereby achieve a singularity where the, the key core of it is the, our human intelligence taken to incredible levels with the new hardware. And then the third potentiality is the one as uh, pro, uh, you know, investigated by Robert J. Sawyer in the WWW trilogy, or even by George Dyson in Darwin Among the Machine. He uses the same title as Samuel Butler's original title, by the way, so let's make sure we have the distinction. But what about those two as options for a singularity? Wouldn't, aren't they likely to say we never understand to, how to create intelligence, but we enhance ours, or it just simply one day happens on the Internet? To be able to enhance your intelligence, you must have a list of things that you want to do, and that requires understanding what intelligence is. So you have many different kinds of intelligence. We as nerds tend to regard mathematical and scientific reasoning, logical reasoning in the Spockian sense, as being the be-all and end-all. But it turns out that's not true in the human brain. Most problems are not solved logically through inductive reasoning or even deductive reasoning. You know, it's, it's all this melange of back and forth of competition and cooperation. Thinking involves an ecological system of checks and balances, which is running at full pace all the time. The brain is one of the most energy-intensive systems around. It can do mathematics. It can do it quite well. And in fact, uh, uh, autistic and, and savant types can do really amazing mathematics, faster than people with calculators, but not faster than big machines. Mm -hmm. But that's not what it's designed to do. A mathematical system, a Turing machine in its purest form, must have excellent information to produce usable results. A biological system runs on bad information. 
-hmm. never gets any better. You are never going to have an adequate set of circumstances conveyed to your brain for you to make a rational decision. So you have to do a stochastic bit of, of supra-reasoning, and it has to be a matter of voting and arguing within your neural systems, and not just that, but within your, your immune system, within your body, all of it in a very rapid period of time, in seconds, fight or flight. Stand and fight, run away and live another day, or just give it up because you're not going to make it. All of that is involved in any biologically reasoning system every single day, from the bacterium, even the virus, although it's not a living thing yet, decisions must be made based on minimum information. Now, bacteria can make many, many decisions over many generations and encode them in the DNA, and so do we. But we have fewer generations. So as I've, I've been showing off my pictures of dragonflies. I love dragonflies, but I look back and I think, okay, back in the Cretaceous, before the Cretaceous, the Carboniferous period, dragonflies were huge. The atmosphere was different. Carbon dioxide was thick air, lots of oxygen in the atmosphere, lots of forest fires everywhere, creating situations of coal and carbon, which we find in Pennsylvania. But the dragonflies were huge. The DNA, how different was it from our dragonflies today, which are mostly not much larger than that. Mm -hmm. They've had so many iterations that they are much more refined than we are in terms of solving the problems of their environment and making decisions. And watching them do that is utterly marvelous. It requires humility. If you sit there and look at the dragonfly and say, I'm so much smarter than you, you are just repeating what's gone on for hundreds of millions of times. I'm going to change the world. I'm going to move suns around. <laughs> the dragonfly is going to go, I'm good for you. I got a mate. Sorry. Zip off got decisions to make, got to raise kids. So do you. How many people are ever going to get off and move sons? You've got to talk about generational stuff. So you're still stuck in the physical body you have. You don't understand that physical body. You don't understand the systems involved in it. We're making major strides. We're, we're doing amazing stuff, but we still cannot tell ourselves positively that a Turing machine can encode, a Turing compliant machine, can encode a biological system, even to the level of one cell. Mm -hmm. I, I see how this addresses the second potential for the singularity, but doesn't it in a way lead credence to a third one, which is to say of, of it potentially emerging or evolving in one way or another, entirely out of our hands, simply because of processes that we don't understand and we don't control Absolutely. in an, a complex environment like the World Wide Web or the Internet or, I don't know, something else. Well, nanotechnology was supposed to do that. You know, nanomachines would create the gray goo situation that would eventually lead to our being, you know, obsolete. I wrote about it in a biological sense in Blood Music, and I'm following on from Arthur C. Clarke, who writes about it in Childhood's End as an evolutionary moment, watched over by aliens who have seen this happen so many times, but cannot, spoiler alert here, cannot ultimately make that leap themselves. So they are like uh, enzymes that create super superhuman beings or super beings but they will never go there themselves. There is no, and this is a very religious, biblical thing for them, there is no land of Canaan for them. They will not cross over into the promised land. Mm -hmm. They are just there to help the children cross over. Mm -hmm. That's a very mystical, moving, you know, idea. In blood music, it turns out that, yeah, when the world is transformed and ends, it's not necessarily a bad thing. Very few people die. You've had the shit scared out of you. You've been transformed into the lime jello, but it's heaven. <laughs> and that's very, that really makes people queasy. A, because A, it's not, you're not being turned into a computer. 
You know, you're not going to be immortal forever. It's biology that saves the day. It's the little things that rise up and take over and dominate. And uh, that's, a, that's a pretty radical thing. So that's very seldom mentioned by the transhumanists. A, because it's biology. They don't like biology. Nerds don't trust biology. Biology makes them sick. Biology is not rational. Biology is hard to understand. I like physics. I like mathematics. I like computers. I program computers. I control computers. I can't program and control myself. Ergo, I do not like biology. Biology is scary. But biology is where everything you live happens. And so the transhumanists are quite brilliant in many respects and, and in the traditional mold of science fiction. And I, in some extent, I, I helped contribute to this whole discourse back in the, in the 70s and 80s. And I love the, the controversy, but we've got a, a few problems to solve before we get there. And when I hear people say we've solved these problems, mm. they are not telling you the truth. They are proselytizing. They want to see the apocalypse happen now. They want it to happen so that they can be proven correct. And I'm not being judgmental here because I feel the same way myself. I would love, one of the reasons I love writing apocalyptic novels is I can, I can stand back as a character and go, see, I told you so. I told you, you didn't listen to me, but it's happening right now. Watch out for it, okay? And I just wish you'd listen to me when I was 14 years old because I could have told you the same thing. I totally get that emotionally. It's the same instinct that leads the apostolic, or the, the uh, um, evangelical Christian to say, you know, I want the world to end when I die, if not before. I want you all to come with me. How is this any different? Well, the science fiction version, the scientific transhumanist version says, we may be able to transform ourselves into angelic forms to survive. Or the angelic forms will be so good at what they do that they replace poor miserable human beings like you over here. And that takes us to the villain talking in a superhero movie, you know which is why I love the Hulk and the Avengers. You know, puny god, wham, wham, yeah. wham. I'd love to see that in more science fiction films. You know, Ender's Game, puny messiah, wham, wham, wham. You are not the one, are you? Why? Because I'm big. I can we beat you up. That's high school. I love it. But we're getting off topic here. The, the, the fact is, I think we need a little more honesty in the transhumanist community, and we need a little more self-examination. A, tell me what intelligence is. Tell me what you think it is. Tell me how you think you can encode it in a machine or even in a superior biological system. How would you create this superior biological intelligence? Would it be a brain in a box? Would it be a bigger head? Would it be more cerebral cortex? Would it be a better integration? Would it be a more athletic form? We had Philip Wiley in the 1920s writing Gladiator, which is the super physical being, leading to, in some extent, to what Superman becomes in the comic books. We have Olaf Stapledon with uh, Oddjohn writing about the intellectual giant, the man whose brain is so far beyond our own through an evolutionary quirk that we cannot possibly understand it, even leading to some extent to psychic powers, mm -hmm. which become very mysterious at the end. Uh, all of those things are still questions that are wide open. We do not know how to do this. It'll be a long time. And my, I'm putting my card on the table here. My card says is mathematically, Mathematics is not the language you need to describe what needs to be done. You can double it up, you can triple it up, you can do it a million times faster. You still will not understand what a biological system does. You can model certain aspects of it brilliantly. You can take one protein and figure out what it might do two or three moves down the road, but you can't take an entire cell with 250,000 proteins operating at 
10,000 hertz with 60 different domains making decisions back and forth, being attended by chaperones, by other proteins, reacting to enzymes, reacting to the challenge of, of systems that are, are saying, are you real? Are you giving us the good stuff here? Or are you defective? If you're defective, we have to break you down and replace you. All of that stuff going on in a single cell. A single cell is maybe a thousand times more complicated than the Boeing factory up here at Everett. You know, it strikes me that you're giving a very Zen Buddhist criticism. Uh, the reason for that is because, you know, I, I w I'm a fan of Alan Watts. So I, I recently was listening to one of his audiobooks where he says, if you are a philosopher and you live in the world of ideas, you get confused. You get confused that the representations, the signs that represent the ideas, are the ideas themselves. And if you live in the world of the ideas, you live in an illusion. You don't live in the real world. Mm -hmm. Do not forget, the real world is not those signs that we take for the real world, just like your name is not the representation of you, or it's a very poor representation of you, right? So it strikes me that your criticism that, you know, there's a lot more than mathematics to our universe it's kind of very Zen Buddhist in a way. It's like it fails. It, it's a, it's the, the, the sign representation of the world, but we should not confuse it with the reality, the real world. Mathematics has done wonderful things to help us understand some of the simpler problems. And I use that almost facetiously, like physics, nuclear physics. We can solve some of these things, but quantum mechanics, we're still running into major problems. We cannot reconcile two different mathematical visions. Mm -hmm. We get more and more complicated mathematical theories and visions, and they're quite beautiful. I mean, mm -hmm. they really are astonishing, and, and you can spend your lifetime absorbing and studying them. Mm -hmm. But Ludwig Wittgenstein points out just what you were saying. The map is not the territory. Exactly right. Too many of us upper brain thinkers confuse the mathematical map with the territory. By conquering the map, we will conquer the world, the universe. And I'm not sure that the map is even a good description of the territory. Mm -hmm. And what we've got in mathematics is still, in some respects, quite primitive from the thousand year, the 10,000 year perspective. So what's going to come mathematically down the road? We've already had fuzzy logic. We've got, you know, uh, uh, TCP IP architecture, robustness in, in, in interlinked systems. We've got all of these marvelous things which are helping us keep the internet alive. And the internet's even more like a biological system to some extent than the phone company was. And science fiction writers back in the 50s were writing about the phone company coming alive. Ray Bradbury mm -hmm. had a pretty good story about that. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and yet, all our machines, all the internet, all of these mathematical things are made for users. They are not themselves users. Computers are not users. Computers have no motivation. Computers are given input and they produce a mathematical output which is making them a function. They're a massive mathematical function with many, many different steps along the way. So the art can be, in some sense, Turing machines, except that computers that reach a certain level of complexity also encounter physical problems, quantum problems, and I think all programmers and all computer people, and all Turing fans, are really embarrassed by this. It's like pointing out that thou art mortal because the computer is mortal. It makes mistakes. When you put information on your hard drive, you have to have a mathematical algorithm to recover it and get it back because you have to do checksums, analysis, all that sort of thing, because it's very corrupt on your hard drive. It doesn't get recorded perfectly. And sometimes it's going to get lost. 
or uh, you know, a, a cosmic ray is going to come down and strike your processor and knock out a bit, and you're going to have to reboot. I'm sorry. Human beings can't reboot. Users can't reboot very easily. So what are you going to do? Oh, in, in some extent, we do that every night, though. I mean, when you go to sleep, when you you're, wake you're up kind of waking morning. up, but that's yeah. a natural process. I'm not sure it's the same thing. It's not, you've lost half your brain. Now pick it up again. When you get shot in the head, that's like what happens to a processor when it has to, to mm. be rebooted. But also, you carry disk drives between computers. You carry paper tapes between computers. There has never been a colossus, like in the Forbin project, where it was all autonomous and self-directed. There's never been Forbidden Planet, the massive, self-engineered, self-creating, recreating, and self-repairing system that we see that the Krell created and then destroyed themselves for other reasons, which we won't go into here, but we've never seen that. We've never been able to create that. Instead, you have machines that are not linked by anything except humans. Humans are the interface between these massive machines. How long will it be before the Forbin project comes along? You're a skeptic it would be any anytime soon. I make no judgments. I've written stories on all sides of this. I've written about giant computer systems. I've written about, in Eon, we have a massive future of of interaction between and uploading and downloading between computer systems or something like computer systems. I don't posit what they are. I learned my lesson from Arthur C. Clarke when he wrote uh, Against the Fall of Night, a billion years in the future, and had vacuum tubes running the computer. Well, that was embarrassing. So he had to re change that on a few other things when he wrote City in the Stars, which is a really good book. Uh, I don't posit what we're going to be doing here. But I also don't say it's mathematically based. Mm -hmm. I don't say any of these systems, which look like machines to us, are mathematically based or really computers. It's in the future. I don't know what they are. Greg, let me ask you a question about the Turing test because it's been bugging me since you've mentioned it. Let me ask you this. Isn't it exactly what we're performing every time we meet a stranger on the street? Absolutely. The Turing test is, is I utterly believe in the Turing test. I think it is a, a lovely concept, totally supported. I love Alan Turing as a philosopher, as a scientist, wrote a story about him called Tangents, where I took him as a, as a fictional character and, and you know, kind of brought him back to, a, to a, a better ending than he actually had, which is just astonishingly cruel. I love Turing and the way he thought. In the end, Turing was apparently trying to figure out whether biological systems met the, the criterion of being Turing machines. And he was working at the level of proteins. He was never able to finish that work, as I understand it. But he was thinking to the next step. He was going to ask the questions that we're all talking about right now. And that's what he was good at. He was good at, at, at seriously questioning his premises mm -hmm. and moving on. Now, whether he could have followed through on it or not, we don't know. As scientists get older, sometimes the problems get too big. But in terms of the Turing test and, and, and whether or not alien intelligence will meet the Turing test or a machine intelligence would meet the Turing test, sure. But who's asking the question? If you have someone that we regard as being an ordinary human being, you know, Joe Blow or Joe the Plumber or whatever, and Joe the Plumber gets on the phone and starts having a phone sex chat with, uh, with a machine intelligence and gets all turned on, what's that tell us about the guy on the phone? What's it tell us about the machine? I don't know. A lot of people are turned on by Siri. But <laughs> Siri is pretty simple, very effective, very interesting. I like, you know, and then the FedEx system where you can actually get your information across within a constrained system by speaking vocally. Vocal recognition is better, nowhere near perfect. We can't even get machines to understand handwriting. 
we can't get machines to, to, to some extent, the Postal Service machines do analyze handwriting effectively enough to be useful, but cursive, all that sort of stuff becomes much, much harder. So translating text, even from a scanned book, <coughs> excuse me, even the Google texts are full of errors. 93% accuracy. That's terrible for a scanned text. It's worse if you're a biological system being loaded up into a computer. Makes the whole Star Trek conception of being, you know, spread across the universe, having your molecules spread across the universe and reassembled, as Bones would say, makes that even dicier. So Star Trek has, okay, there are some errors. The fly had a major error before Star Trek came along. A fascinating conceptual story. Real cautionary warning published in Playboy magazine of all places. <laughs> you know, lovely, lovely concepts warning us, okay, this could be very cool. Matter transmitters, which are in Buck Rogers. You know, zap. When we see Duck Dodgers in the 24th and a half century do that, that comes out of the, the serials where they actually are zapping Buck Rogers and sending him off into the stratosphere, reconstructing him. All of that stuff comes down to the same issue. If you can scan a biological system, can you make a map of the territory that will allow you to reproduce it? Remember that blueprints are simplified things that allow you with, with, with educated and, and talented individuals who have been trained in this to build a house or a building. But they don't give you the physics, they don't give you the chemistry, they don't tell you how to mix the concrete. The DNA is the same way. DNA is a serving suggestion which has so many helpers to come in and make it work and correct it and put it into physical form that if all you have is the DNA and you don't have any of the helpers, the proteins, the cellular systems, whatever, you are like being someone who's never read a blueprint looking at what's going on, and we're in that stage now. We're just beginning to discover the complexities of this. When I wrote Darwin's Radio, it was perfectly obvious to me that most of what we call junk DNA, now that's fascinating stuff. There's a lot going on here. And today only journalists and poorly educated journalists use the phrase junk DNA. Yeah. So DNA is extraordinarily complicated, and it cannot do anything without that surrounding servant of the cell. Yeah, I interviewed Dr. George Church and he said there is no such thing as, as junk DNA. No. no. Um, but I, I want to move on our conversation here because we've been going on for a while and I just want to touch a little bit more about your work. Um, you know, I, I have a lot of catching up to do, I have to admit. Um, you have 44 books. I only read no, about... Only, only 35 so far. 34, 35, 35. 30, 34 or 35 novels. Why did so. I read their, their 44? There's so maybe much. some short story collections, and it may pump up to 40 at some point, but I, I've lost track. Anyway, you're, it's, it's within an order of magnitude. Well, still, I have a lot of catching Mod up. Mod 2, to, you're about right. To, 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 to. And I read a few in the last couple of weeks. Uh, I read uh, How Zero Three. I read City at the End of Time. I read uh, Halo Cryptum. So let me ask you, you've been actually doing a lot of works, uh, a lot of books in the last few years, mm -hmm. uh, trilogies and, and so on. Uh, what's next for Greg Bear? Another trilogy. I'm having uh, fun uh, basically going back and because I found over the years that I borrowed from science fiction writers and science fiction writers have borrowed from me. It's time for me to borrow from myself. So I'm going <laughs> back and taking some of the themes that I feel could be redeveloped and expanded upon and like Hull Zero Three, which is in a some extent like Eon, but not quite the same. Uh, and take new ideas and, and plug them into the same problems, like how do we get between the stars? Well, Hull Zero Three is, you know, we, we have to strap ourselves to an ice moon in the out, outer parts of the solar system to do that. 
So I'm writing a book called War Dogs now, just handed it in. Part two is on the, the computer just getting started. And it's an examination of A, alien invasion, but positive alien invasion, kind of a version of Close Encounters, only it may not turn out to be quite as good as before, which is a little bit what I did with Forge of God, which turned out not to be so good. So I'm going back and forth on this and playing with these ideas. And, and uh, it, it occurred to me that composers are allowed to take their string quartets and their previous symphonies and, and wrap them into new com compositions. Mm -hmm. I'm having fun doing that to some extent. But also, I don't think there's been much in the way of thoroughgoing uh, military science fiction with a real military angle since, say, the Forever War. Uh, there's good books out there, uh, you know, Scalzi, Weber, uh, uh, to some extent, uh, a lot of, uh, of the uh, Sterling and so on. These are writing very entertaining novels, but how many of them are capturing the experience of a real warrior fighting in today's world? So that's what I'm setting out to do. That's like the Mongoliad for the future, in a way. Mm, to some extent, yeah. Uh, Mongoliad is trying to be medieval again. Yeah. And to, but to get into the mind of a warrior, so I'm trying to think like a veteran. Mm -hmm. And that's a tough go. So I've had to run it past veterans, and I hope it passes muster. But in fact, it's a real challenge, because I've never been in battle. Well, I'm looking forward to it, because uh, first of all, I, I, I'm a recovering uh, sort of military uh, strategy. I, yeah. I, I have a degree in political science, but yeah. my interest was war and, and armed conflict in general. And you know, I, I was conscripted in the army when I was 18, and, and I did serve one year, one month, and 26 days that I, I remember. And um, so I'm looking forward to that book. But but it seems to me the other interesting thing is that you're kind of playing jazz with your own tunes, yes. in a way. Well, jazz musicians are allowed to go back and bring in pop culture, you know, references yeah. and sample and do this and that. And, and, I, and science fiction has always been a dialogue. So I want to find out where's the evolution? What's the change that you're seeing in yourself from something that you wrote or thought about 30 years ago or 35 years ago, and now you're kind of re-jazzing it? What's the, the change? What's the, the thing where you say, hmm, I really don't see it like this anymore? I'd say it's more a matter of a maturity of style to where I can control the expression a little better than I was able to in the past. Mm -hmm. And also to be a little bit more uh, elegant and maybe a little simpler in the exposition. So a simplification like a potter, you hope as you become a master potter that you can do it something very quickly with it like that. Or if you're Picasso, you can just go like that. So these books are shorter and if not sweeter, I think they're a little more elegant than mm -hmm. books in the past. Certainly Hall 03, or even something like City at the End of Time, which is a massive summing up Humongous of all book. the weird physics I've ever thought of. Uh, along with, you know, my love of horror fiction and metaphysical fiction and all that stuff. It's all tied together. I think that, that came out very, very well. Uh, and it's very complicated. It may it take is. a long time for people to actually see that book. But it actually sold pretty well, so not unhappy about that. Um, it's my job to continue doing things that surprise my readers and that surprise me. Mm -hmm. If I get bored with something, I'm not going to be able to write it. Mm -hmm. So the challenge has to be there. And I find myself now writing paragraphs where I go, damn, ain't seen nothing like that since Michelangelo. Oh, wow. <laughs> and then I go back for the next three months and revise the hell out of it. So <laughs> but that's always been the case. case. Self-satisfaction. So, Greg, l let, me, let me ask you about your verdict about on humanity, right? That, that would be a fun idea. How do you see us? Are we going to prosper and survive and, and sort of colonize the universe? Or 
are we going to wither and die as a civilization? What's, what's, what's the future for us? All of that. Some of us are going to live and prosper. Some of us are going to die. All of us are going to die eventually. Our children will live on. I'm a biological optimist. I don't believe in apotheosing. I don't believe in saying it's all going to change and it'll be unrecognizable. Because along the way, our children, we may not recognize it. Heck, there are people today who don't understand this world at all. <laughs> and I'm one of them. You know, it's very complicated. I cannot fix my computer chip to save my life. I gotta buy a new one. If it breaks, I can't remake it. Um, so I, I'm an optimist about the, the strength and the uh, amazing resilience of biological systems, of us. We are not angels. We are animals. We have never been angels. Mm -hmm. Whether we become angels or not is not a, a really a, a big importance to me because although it, it has impressed me as a science fiction concept in my years, today I'm less and less impressed by it because I'm not sure I want to be ruled by angels. Mm. You know, the angels are, are, are beings that are superior in some respect and yet do not have mortal, immortal soul, do not have immortal soul. So how are they better than us? If machines become angels, how are they better than us? But I'm optimistic about our ability to endure. Because for one thing, we have. We've gotten through the 20th century, which is one of the worst on record. We've gotten through the 14th century. We've gotten through transformations like, you know, the, the grasslands of the steppes rising up and, and sweeping over Europe and Asia many times. And we're past and that the ice now. ages. Yeah, the, the ice ages and, and the whole migration periods and the pinch points of starvation and, and climate change and evolution has been a constant challenge. And yet we've now found skulls that are 1.8 million years old and my gosh, it looks like some of these, some of these human-like early humans lasted for a million years or a million and a half years without substantial changes. That's pretty astonishing as a product rollout. You know, not sure many cars are gonna be able to guarantee that. So as biological beings, we have already been around a good long time. We haven't lasted as long as some of the dinosaurs, but the dinosaurs were changing all the time too. So who knows? Whether or not we'll survive, whether an astronomical accident will ensue or whatever, my feeling about the future is it's going to be very surprising. You're never going to know what to expect. Uh, you're never going to be totally prepared for it because you don't have complete information about the past or about yourself. Mm -hmm. In that respect, I think we've done pretty damn good. Where can people find more about you and your work? Well, I still am old-fashioned, and I, I kind of hang out around my website, www.gregbear.com. Occasionally, I do stuff on Facebook, but if people want to get a hold of me, they can get me through my website. I'm not a big fan of Twitter and everything because I want to spend my time writing, mm -hmm. and I don't want to get locked into the social reflex of, gosh, everybody loves me because I tweeted something. I want to write a book. If everybody loves me, they have to spend time to read the story of the book. I think we'd love you to we would love you <laughs> to, for you to write a book. I, I think. But that's that's my upbringing. Is is all this social stuff is quite wonderful. It's fascinating to look at. It's an amazing experience. I'll, I'll happily get on it occasionally, but I, I spend most of my time alone, banging my head against a wall, trying to figure out what to write. Mm -hmm. Well, Greg, I want to thank you for this amazing opportunity today to talk with you for I over an hour and to host us for two other interviews in an upcoming panel. But let me ask you about the parting message, perhaps the most important thing that you'd like our viewers and listeners to take away from our conversation today. What would you like that to be? Never be self-satisfied. Never believe that you have the answer. 
always ask the next, the next question, which is Theodore Sturgeon's maxim. Always be young and never be fixed in your thinking to the extent that you believe that you can lord it over somebody else. Never be persuaded that your culture or your point of view is the dominant one. And don't think of your superiority. You are an animal. You are not an angel. And even if you were an angel, I wouldn't necessarily listen to you. So those of us who are certain that we would overcome biology, we would become immortal and artificial intelligences are the next step of evolution. You could be. You could be, and I, I look forward to that happening. Uh, I haven't signed up for it. Uh, and I like, I'd like to see it while it happens, because so far the results have not been pretty. But it is in the early stages. Mm -hmm. And if we're talking a thousand years down the road and not ten years down the road, you know, I, I think we've, we've often said, yes, it's coming in your lifetime. Not in my lifetime. <laughs> and maybe not in my son's lifetime or my daughter's lifetime and maybe not in their grandkids' lifetime. When I was a kid, I thought I understood the future of space travel. We would be on Mars in the 1970s. We'd be going to the stars by the 21st century, following up on some variety or another of what we'd seen in science fiction movies or in read in books. Uh, 2001 was just marvelous, you know? There's no great big wheeled space station out there. We got space stations, that's cool. Some of them crash you know, or, or abandoned. That's not cool. So the future is, is interesting. It's actually a lot like the science fiction I read when I was a kid, but it's not exactly the same. Greg Baer, thank you very much for having us today. Thank you. Thank you for talking to me.